Let's pray together. Almighty God, please pour out your spirit upon us as we open up your word together and speak words of life and words of comfort, words that shake us out of our, our place of slumber or sleep. God, speak words that you know that each of us need to hear, often very different from one another. This is a work that you alone can do. And so we pray that you would do so by your mercy and your grace among us this afternoon. Pour out your spirit, we pray. With your spirit, we thank you that our expectations can be high. Jesus, be lifted up. We pray this in your name and we pray this for your glory. Amen. For the past few weeks, we have considered with Peter from verses 3 through 12 of 1 Peter 1, the position of the Christian. And now we're moving on today to verses 13 through 21, where Peter deals with our response to what God has done in our lives, enjoying such incredible privileges as children of God and such a true hope. How are we to live? The answer that Peter gives in short is holiness. We are to live holy lives, calling us to what I entitled the sermon today, an obedient hope. Now I acknowledge in bringing up holiness that most of us probably experience some reservations in thinking about this topic. It may be that we're painfully aware of just how far away our lives are from being holy in any genuine sense, and the sense that further contemplation of a subject like this is just going to make us feel worse. Or perhaps it's that we're holding tightly to aspects of our lives that we know aren't in line with the kingdom of God and his values and aims, and we don't really want to look into that. Or perhaps it's because holiness conjures up some idea of a stern, highly disciplined, pleasure-free existence that we fear may be the goal of the Christian life, or perhaps is a model of the Christian life that we've had held up to us at some point. Reservations aside, however, it is a subject that is at the heart of God and at the heart of our lives as the people of God. And so Peter takes us straight to this point together as he turns to our response to what God has done. We're going to deal with this in, with three questions. What, why, and how? So first, what is holiness? Negatively, it is a call to nonconformity. That's where Peter begins in verse 14. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not conform, he says. That may ring uh, a resonance with Paul in Romans chapter 12 when he transitions from, the, from expositing the gospel to then applying it and looking at what it looks like in our lives. He says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the same word there for being conformed. Holiness is non-conformity to the attractive and alluring, but always empty life offered to us by the world. This means fundamentally that the call to holiness is a call to be different from the culture around us. We see this explicitly 
in Leviticus chapter 18, one chapter before what we read earlier, which Peter quotes Leviticus 19, 2 and verse 16. This is from chapter 18 in Leviticus, verses 3 and 4. You shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You are to be different, my people, from the place that you've come from and from the place to which I am taking you. In John Stott's final book, The Radical Disciple, Stott was this wonderful Bible teacher and a worldwide leader of the evangelical movement in the latter half of the 20th century. His last book, The Radical Disciple, the first chapter is called Nonconformity. And Stott writes about pluralism. There's no objective truth. Materialism, the overtaking of our lives by greed. Moral relativism, the fact that you can do what feels good and seems right to you. And narcissism, the reality that it's all about me. And he describes these isms as things that mark our culture and our day and calls us as followers of Jesus not to participate in these things, but rather to resist them, not to conform. And Peter links these ways of life to ignorance in verse 14. Whatever the particular isms of any particular culture or time period, these things arise out of a failure to acknowledge or honor God as the creator, the one true God. And he calls this alluring and attractive way of life empty in verse 18. You were redeemed from the empty way of life, he says, handed down to you from your forefathers. Try as you might, and we all do, life outside of, outside of God doesn't and can't fill or satisfy. Don't be conformed. But instead, positively, holiness is the call to be transformed into the likeness of the holy God. So Peter continues in verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, and he cites Leviticus 19 too, be holy because I am holy. The word holy means set apart or distinct. And to say that God is holy is to point to God's godness, his otherness, his uniqueness, to that which makes him distinct from all that is creaturely and corrupt. It is a word that points particularly to God's purity and his sinlessness. God is not tainted by sin as we are. And we who were made as his image bearers, as we learn in Genesis 1, we are called to be like him. How do we know what God is like? We look at scripture where God and his character are revealed to us. In his 1877 classic, J.C. Ryle, which is entitled Holiness, J.C. Ryle says this, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man. We also not only look at scripture and how God and his character are revealed there, but we look more specifically at Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. And of course, Jesus is revealed for us in scripture itself. The end of John's prologue, John 1.18, the gospel writer says, no one has ever seen God, 
the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here is a human being who was God in the flesh. And so when we want to know what God is like, we are encouraged by God himself to look at his son, to look at Jesus. And we are called to be like him. I think it's a fair summary of the whole discipline of Christian ethics, which is the discipline of Christian theology that is answering the question, how should we live? To say it like this, we are called to be like Jesus. It is perhaps no wonder that the most widely read Christian devotional book outside of the Bible itself is the 15th century classic of Thomas Akempis entitled The Imitation of Christ. This theme of imitating God in Christ weaves its way into every one of the 27 books of the New Testament. It is a feature theme. To be holy is to be like God. To be like God is to be like Jesus, God in the flesh. That means, of course, that at the top of our list when it comes to Christian ethics is to love. And that is the new commandment that Jesus gave to us as disciples, to love one another as I have loved you. It's no surprise that Peter, when he gets to verse 22, connects the purifying work of obeying the truth to having a sincere love for one another. A couple of weeks ago, a weeks ago I mentioned that when we are born into a family, it brings with it certain privileges. But it's also true that being born into a family brings with it a bearing of the family likeness. For all of us in some ways, this becomes more and more apparent, in my experience at least, the older that we get. And it means the impossible to escape realization that yes, we are like our parents. A few years ago, I was listening to someone who was being interviewed on NPR and he said this, we are the sum total of our parents and all our efforts to try to not be like them. There's certainly some truth to that for all of us. However healthy or unhealthy our relationship with our parents is, or was. I've done a few things lately around the house where my kids will just say, oh, dad, that's just like papa, which is what they call my dad. And Peter here uses family language in this text, calling us obedient children in verse 14 and talking about our relationship to one that we call father in verse 17. And he is saying fundamentally that we are to be like our heavenly father, be holy because I am holy just like Jesus was like his father. So that when others see the way that we live, our kids, our spouse, our neighbors, our colleagues, those in the church with us, they would say, oh, that's just like Jesus. That's a way of thinking about holiness. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Tinboom recounts a poignant moment in the process of working in the Dutch underground during World War II. A young woman and her two-week-old baby were brought to her and her father's home behind their watch shop. The two-week-old infant, of course, did not know how to stay quiet and was a threat to all the others that they were hiding in their home. The next day, a pastor from a nearby small town from a church that they knew, a friend of theirs, came to the shop and needed a watch to be fixed. And Corey had the brilliant idea that perhaps this woman and her baby could go and be hidden at this pastor's home. So she takes the pastor behind the shop into their house, into their dining room, and then shows him the little infant. And she asks him, could he stay with you? To which the pastor replied, no, definitely not. We could lose our lives for that Jewish child. This is how she continues. Unseen by either of us, father had appeared in the doorway. Give the child to me, Corey, he said. Father held the baby close 
his white beard brushing its cheek, looking into the little face with eyes as blue and innocent as the baby's own. At last, he looked at the pastor. You say we could lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. The pastor then turned abruptly and walked out. That is holiness. That is a picture of holiness. Being like God. That's the what. Now let's think about the why. Which is implicit throughout this text in the familial language that's used. But I want us to make it explicit here because it's critical and important. We are to be holy because of who we are and of whose we are. Because of our identity. Because we have been given new birth into a living hope. We've been brought into the new family as we have seen over the last few weeks. And we need not stop. We need to stop actually here and make sure that this is really clear. Because we will never take the hard path of nonconformity, the path of holiness, if we miss this point. It's a point that's implied in the therefore of verse 13, which carries with it all the glorious truths that we've considered over the last few weeks in verses 3 through 12. The foundation of and the motivation for a life of conformity to God and nonconformity to the world is the gracious acts of God in Christ on our behalf. In other words, we do not live a certain way so that we might receive the favor of God. On the contrary, because we have received God's mercy and grace, his unmerited favor, we are now moved and empowered as his children to live in a certain way. Peter says in verse 14, as obedient children, this is an obedient hope, it moves us to live in obedience to him. And I do want all of you to hear this, but I especially want those of you who are teenagers or tweens who are listening. It is easy for all of us to get this wrong, but I think this is especially the case for us when we are young. I've heard that story too many times. Someone who says, look, I did everything right when I was a kid so that I might be accepted. And I want you to know that that is just not the gospel. That is not the message of the New Testament proclamation. We cannot now, nor can we ever, earn the favor and love of God by what we do. God loves you because he just loves you. That is who he is. That is at the heart of our good news. God gives us his favor, his gift, and our holy living, which is empowered only by the gift of his Holy Spirit, is our fitting response to what God has done in our lives. We want to reflect back the love and acceptance of this unmerited favor and look more like our Heavenly Father in the posture of our hearts and in our actions and our words. And that is the underlying dynamic of Christian living. And it's always been this way. This isn't just a New Testament reality. Consider, for example, the prologue to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Before God says to his people, look, this is how we're going to do life together. He says this in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, Israel, I have rescued you. I came into a place, the place of your bondage. And by my power and my authority and my love, I carried you out of bondage. And now that I've defeated your enemies, now that I've liberated you from your captives, and I'm bringing you into a promised land, now here is the way that life will work in our family. 
And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And he continues the Ten Commandments. In other words, these commands, this way of life, this holy way of life is given to the people of Israel, not so that they might earn the favor of God, but rather that they might reflect together as a community the favor and grace and mercy of the God that has already poured all of that out upon them. They are the rescued people of God. And like them long ago, now, only in a greater and more brilliant manner, we, the people of God, are recipients of God's greater mercy. We have been redeemed and ransomed, as Peter says in verses 18 and 19, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This idea, of course, evokes the Exodus and the story of the Passover when a lamb was slain so that people of God could be passed over and then delivered. It evokes as well the deliverance of God's people from exile. The word for ransom or redeemed here is a word that's used in the Septuagint around the rescue from exile as well. And it's a word that evokes the idea of the manumission of slaves in the Greco-Roman world of the day. The giving of a payment that a slave might be set free. Peter is conjuring up all of this in saying, you were redeemed from the feudal way of life that you inherited from your forefathers by the precious blood of Christ by a lamb. So live accordingly. Be holy. The same way of thinking is articulated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, another passage about holiness where he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So then Paul says, so glorify God in your body. You're owned, bought, you belong to another. So live now who you are. On this point of why, I also want to mention that being God's people brings with it a certain vocation or mission. The God who has rescued us is a God who is on mission, a God who has set out to reconcile and renew all things through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has called us into his mission as his people and given us a vocation and a mission to pursue with him together. And that to be pursued rightly depends upon our holiness, our living a qualitatively different way of life than the world around us. In chapter 2, verse 9, a passage we'll look at a bit in a few weeks' time, Peter declares that we are God's people, but then he says, why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That proclamation of the excellencies of God, the manifold perfections of God and his wonderful character is something that comes out of the holy living of the people of God, our being holy. We participate in his mission humbly. We're only here by grace. We do so with an awareness of the log in our own eye. We do that without any sense of superiority over our neighbors. And we do this without any sense of condemnation. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But we do this as the holy people of God. The reality is if we mimic or if we are conformed to the world around us, how will the light of God shine through us? You remember Jesus calls us the light of the world in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Just after he has detailed for them the reality of Christian character, a reality that he, he talks about in the Beatitudes that he embodies most deeply in himself as the perfect son of God. And we are called to be like him. Now thirdly and lastly, let's think about how. 
And let me say a few things that go beyond this particular text for how we grow in holiness. Because I think they're just important. First, we need to admit that we're not holy. Every one of us comes to this topic as woefully inadequate. And we confess our sins together every time we gather for worship. To reinforce this point. Second, we need to admit that we cannot be holy in our own strength. Our will and our merit are woefully inadequate. We desperately need God and his grace. We depend upon him. And that's thirdly then leads me to say that we can only grow in holiness by the power of God in us, by the Holy Spirit. Notice the Spirit is qualified with the adjective holy. He is, verse 2 of 1 Peter 1, the one who sets us apart or sanctifies us. It is by God's power that we grow in this way of life. And also we are intentional then about partnering with the Spirit in our own lives, through our own will and engagement of our intentions. So Hebrews can say in verse 14 of chapter 12, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That word strive is meant to be heard there. Or 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself for godliness. These are things that we're to take up and to work at and to press into together as the people of God. But what does Peter draw our attention to in relation to how we might grow in holiness? And I would say it in this way. It is to living with the end in mind. After the therefore in first, verse 13, Peter writes, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Or we might say with minds that are alert and fully sober. That word for self-controlled is really sober-minded. We are to see clearly with our minds the glorious truths of the gospel that Peter has just said in verse 12 that has been proclaimed to us and of our position and our future as a result of that gospel. We are to grasp this with our minds, to think clearly about it and to be ready to act as a result of it, to be sober-minded, Peter says, which is to have a mind that is not deluded by any physical or spiritual drunkenness or misunderstanding. That is to say, a sober-minded person can see through the counterfeit promises of life that this world has to offer and not be duped by those promises or allured in by those promises. It is to see that life, the only life that there really is, is the life of God offered to us freely in Christ. Peter will come back to the idea of being sober-minded in chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 5, verse 8. In other words, with a clear mind about the gospel and all these wonderful truths, we are to see clearly to the end, which means two things. First, living in light of the end in this section means being aware of the reality of judgment and of our God who is Father as judge. This is certainly a bit surprising to us. It may not be what we would think about writing Christians who are suffering and needing encouragement, but Peter takes this moment to do this here. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, verse 17, Live out your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Again, the thought of judgment is sobering and can burn our modern ears in ways. Yet it is used throughout the New Testament, not just, of course, here by Peter, but in places like by Jesus in Matthew 25 or by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14, to mention just a few. It's used throughout to motivate us to live a holy life. Granted, this is a kind of negative motivation, but it's a very biblical motivation and we should never shy away from what the Bible uses to encourage us. The reality of judgment calls us away from a casual approach to God, an approach which is far too commonplace in our culture today. 
a kind of Jesus is simply my best friend approach, or God is just there to make me feel better approach. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the holy judge of all the world, and one day we will stand before him to give an account for our lives. Shielded, yes, of course, by the grace of God in Christ, but that day will come when we will stand and give an account. So, Peter says, I want you to live in light of that end. And what Peter says that this means then is for us to live our lives, our short time as strangers here, in reverent fear, or just in fear, as the original says. Now, be clear, this isn't the kind of fear that a slave would have of a capricious master, but rather the kind of fear to be felt by a subject toward a benevolent and gracious king who is powerful, who has authority, who has declared his goodwill toward all his subjects, and who his subjects know that they will be held accountable for all that the king has entrusted to them. This is a king, as we know, in our own version of this story, who has not only declared his benevolent intentions, but who has lived those out by sending forth his son to take upon himself the cost and penalty of our sin, to suffer and die a death that he did not deserve, but that we did in order that we might live a life to him that we could never have lived apart from his intervention. We never need to wonder what this king's intentions are toward us. All we must do is look to the cross and we know what his heart is toward us. And yet during this time of our exile, Peter says, during our earthly lives, let us let our faith in this benevolent king be infused with a healthy fear that acknowledges his otherness, his mysteriousness, that rejects any notion that we might have a claim upon his grace and therefore grow soft or weak or somehow complacent in our lives with him, but rather that leans upon him as the source of all goodness and all power and all grace for life for his spirit, for strength, and for stamina. Granted, while at times too focused on this, in that the church has been too focused on this aspect in times in its history, which has caused damage and led to a misunderstanding or a diminishment of the grace of God, we must say that biblically speaking, a rightly understood healthy fear of God as the great judge is not incompatible with faith or assurance, but rather is a necessary part of faith when we see God clearly in all his manifest glory. Peter goes on, of course, after encouraging them to live their lives in reverent fear, to detail, he says, knowing the wonders of their redemption and of our hope in the subsequent verses, that we have been bought with a price. But he inserts the reality of judgment here in verse 17 to motivate his readers to live in light of that end that is coming. But alongside that motivation in verse 17, we go back to the opening verse as we close in verse 13. It is always the love and salvation of God that is the primary motivator for us to live a holy life. So second, living in light of the end means to set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That idea fully or completely is critical. In light of all that God has done for us in Christ, in light of this new birth, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed. The grace that's going to be brought to you. Most of us know the investment strategy of diversifying your portfolio to spread out your risk. Well, that investment strategy is the exact opposite of what Peter wants us to do with our hope. He says, I want you to put all of your eggs in this one basket. Do not hedge your bets. Do not lean your life or your hope for a better future upon all of the things that our world tells us to invest in. 
Those are good things. And they can be pursued faithfully underneath the grace of God. But don't set your hope on those things. A great career, education, financial prosperity, whatever it might be. Rather, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Put everything that you have into this future. Live in light of this end. Make this your foundation for your life. Only then, when that's what we're living for, when we live in light of the end, only then could you risk your life for a two-week-old infant. Only then could you hear the command of Jesus to love your enemies, to pray for those who curse you, to bless those who persecute you. Only then could you begin to embody the holiness of God, the character of God, the, the Son of God, and become like him in your lives. Only as you live for the end, as you see this clearly. This was brought home, I think, to many of us this week when Ravi Zacharias passed away on Tuesday. Here was a man whose 10 talents, maybe more than 10 talents, have been used and deployed for the sake of the glory of Jesus since the day he met him when he was 17. This was a man who lived with the end in sight. This is our privilege to be these kinds of men and women and children who have our lives given to us by God in Christ and who now live in response to that as obedient children with an obedient hope who long to grow into holiness more and more day by day. Again, some of us might be thinking, ah, I'm so far away. I want to remind you of the forgiveness of God in Christ. It is never too late to begin to walk down this path of holiness. God longs for us as his children to do this more and more, day by day. And one of the places we begin, again, is in confession and saying, God, I've messed up. God, I've done these things that are not pleasing to you. God, please forgive me. Or God, I'm holding on to this part of my life that doesn't align with you and your kingdom. God, I relinquish it to you. And then we begin to grow by the power of his spirit, day by day, more and more, into the holy people of God that he is calling us to be. People who look like his son. People who when others see us might say, wow, that's just like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we cry out to you tonight from a place of need. God, we need your forgiveness. We need your power, we need your spirit to pour out upon us, to motivate us, to move us toward life in your son and to move us toward more and more being the holy people that you have called us to be. God, you are holy. And the praises around your throne cry out, holy, holy, holy. Oh Lord, may you enable us to grow as your holy people. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we pray this for Jesus' glory, that you, Lord Jesus, would be exalted and glorified through our spirit-empowered lives. Amen.